Good evening <coughs> to you all. So now that we've had our two small groups today, we really are in silence. There's a kind of way in launching this undertaking of practice with the coming of the silence that we can feel very alone. Sometimes the uh, inability to communicate verbally or in the ways that we usually do or to talk to the people we usually talk to to even get a sense of what's going on collectively by checking the news can lead us to feel kind of cut off, cut off from the world. But it's a very interesting thing that this very process of turning all the energies of the heart and mind inward towards our own experience can actually lead us in the direction of feeling close to others, quite close more and more intimate with ourselves and surprisingly in this process of practice more connected and more intimate with others as well even though we're not speaking. We can initially think that we're doing this retreat alone because after all the special conditions here are asking us to let go of a lot of things. You know, we said, okay, let go of online activities, let go of writing, let go of winking, let go of speaking, let go of gesturing, let go of all the things that we normally do as part of this human family that values collectivity that values community, that, that relies very much on that for a sense of place, a sense of belonging. We're even encouraging you tomorrow morning to take your cell phones and to put them into a little envelope and to bring them forward. This is a, a really radical kind of thing to do in the present these devices that have so much power that they sometimes feel like they're a tool and an extension of our our very self. Can feel a little incomplete at the beginning to not have that. As you notice the mind kind of dart around and kind of intuitively look for it. I'm just going to check and see what my text messages are. Just going to check. I'm just going to check the weather. I'm just going to check the news. I'm going to check my emails. And for a while, the mind can dart in that kind of way. And then after a while, it stops. And the feeling can start to open. Oh, I'm coming back to myself now. I'm here. I'm here with my own experience. You probably have noticed when you told your friends or family or co-workers, colleagues, that you were going to be going someplace for a period of 
six weeks or three months and uh, they weren't going to be hearing from you and because you weren't going to be speaking and you weren't going to be texting and you weren't going to be writing, that you may have gotten an, uh, a bit of a reaction. <laughs> did you get a look? <laughs> or did people actually say, you know, oh, you are? Or did they say, oh, that sounds really interesting? Or did they say, oh, I could never do that? Or maybe they just kind of thought you were a little bit wacky that you would undertake that kind of thing. Because it can be hard to under to explain to others why you might want to do something like that. What would be the point of that? And yet if we look in history, in many, many different cultures, there have been occasions where people have gone forth, who, who have gone into situations of seclusion, whether it's on a vision quest or on what Joseph Campbell might call the hero's journey, who have gone into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, who have turned away from their usual worldly activities trying to find a path to something deeper, something truer, something that is more reliable than the impermanent, ephemeral things of this conditioned world. I remember a couple of years ago I went to see a documentary for a film called Integrate Silence. Integrate Silence. And this was filmed in a Christian monastery somewhere in Europe, uh, high up in the mountains. I'm guessing it was probably the Alps. And I'm not sure what the religious order was there, but they were very strict. This was an ancient-looking monastery that had these uh, incredibly thick... uh, stone walls. You know, the the walls themselves were probably six feet uh, thick, built to be there, built to be there for centuries. And practice had probably been going on there for centuries. And the movie was largely silent itself. So this particular group of monks do very little speaking or talking. They spend their days and their nights in prayer and meditation and study and you know, time in the, in the chapel together, probably do some chanting together, just as we'll do tonight. But aside from that, they were pretty each to themselves, even though they lived in community. So part of the, the movie would... Uh, show, for instance, the, the, the lay person who worked for the monastery and who prepared their food, having the food on this cart that he would push down these uh, wide corridors and he would stop at each monk's cell. <laughs> and I can't remember whether he put the food through a slot in the door or he left it by their door and knocked or whatever it was, but this was all done wordlessly. 
all done wordlessly. And then the monk would come out and get his, his food and he would eat it um, by himself in silence. So this was a very interesting experience to watch this long movie. I think it was over two hours long. Two hours long watching what was going on at the monastery and uh, with nobody uh, much talking, you know, some ambient sounds in the background. And, uh, and then, of course, the sounds of people eating their popcorn. Crunch, crunch, yeah. crunch, crunch, you know. <laughs> a little sensory detail, which is usually largely concealed when you're attending a more uh, active kind of film. And I noticed uh, as this movie went on that people started to leave. You know, you would hear, see somebody stand up out of the corner of your eyes and you hear the sound of the seat kind of folding up. And then they'd, you know, walk out and you'd hear the door open and they'd leave. I guess the pacing was a little slow for them. You know, there wasn't enough action going on. There wasn't, there weren't car chases, there weren't romances, you know, there weren't, there wasn't character development going on. And, and I'm sure the people who left thought, well, there's nothing going on here. Noth- nothing is happening. It's just like quiet. It was still. They probably thought, oh, this is deadly boring. And then the next thought probably was, how could anybody ever live like that? Why would somebody want to do something like that? And why would you want to watch a movie that was about nothing? Nothing was happening. You're sitting there for two hours, two and a half hours, watching nothing happening. But I was... uh, rather entranced by the movie because I saw that it was filled with light. It was filled with light both figuratively and and literally. And I found it very beautiful. But I could understand why people would leave because there's really no way to show the inner life of the monks, their inner experience. So, you know, in their cells, in the cloisters, in the chapel, there was a lot going on. It just wasn't showing up on film. And what would they say even if they did talk? What would they, what would they, what could they say that would communicate their experience to somebody who was watching it in a movie theater? You know, this inner experience. And, you know, those of you who have done long practice before know what I'm talking about when you go home and you try to share your experience of being on retreat. So there's a certain kind of ineffability in what we're doing here that can't be put into words because the way understanding opens is largely nonverbal. And even when you put it into words, the words don't really convey the reality of the experience. So now we're in together in silence, in silence together, alone but together. 
we're part of this sangha, this community of practitioners that we have just formed by our commitment to the refuges and the precepts and by our common intention to practice together for this period of time. So for you, hour by hour, day by day, you're going to sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk in proximity to this particular group of people. And each of you will know in your own way, your own inner and outer experience moment by moment. But the experience of other people will be largely concealed from you, unknown and unshared, at least until the end of the retreat. But the presence of the other people who are here on retreat with you will carry you many times. When you see somebody getting up from the hall and going to a walking place and begin their walking place, that may carry you when you feel like you really don't want to do it. When you inspire someone else by your courage after you've had an obviously difficult time and you stay practicing, you keep keep going. You summon resolve your practice continues, you can be a source of inspiration for others as well. This is our mutual support, our sangha forming in silence. We walk the path together here. And it's true, you know, our, our conditions are different. Our conditioning is different. Our place in our, the larger culture is different. Our inner worlds are different. And yet, our moment-to-moment experience, so unique to us, so particular to us, has everything to do with the Buddha's teachings about the common nature of reality. The fact that we all suffer in certain kinds of ways that are kind of baked into the human dilemma. And in one way or another, we're all here to learn how to work with, in a skillful kind of way, states of difficulty, to hold states of ease without clinging, without attachment to learn through this process of mindful engagement with our experience moment by moment what it means to be a free human being. What it means to touch the full range of human experience without getting bound up, entangled with the kind of wrong understanding or wrong relationship that leads us into suffering. So each in our own way, in our individual laboratory, is running the same kind of 
experiment. We all want to be happy and we all want to be free. But I don't want to leave you with the idea that in the silent world that you now inhabit, well, except for your own thoughts, there'll be plenty of those, but in the world of external silence that you now inhabit, that you're alone. Because in addition to the support of the other folks that are on retreat, there's the larger support of the environment, the the staff and volunteers who keep this retreat running by their many, many activities. And there's the support of the teachers. So for the next six weeks or the next three months, your primary human connection is actually going to be with your two teachers. So I want to talk about the relationship between the teachers and the people on retreat and talk in particular about the practice meetings. So let me ask a question just to see what people's experience has been with practice meetings thus far. How many of you have rarely or never had an individual practice meeting with a teacher? Put them up, put them up. Okay, so that's the case for some folks. And how many um, of you have had many individual practice meetings with a teacher? Okay, so that's maybe half. And how many of you have had practice meetings where you had to follow a specific formula for the meetings? For instance, you'd go in and you'd do prostrations and then you would report to the teacher your experience with the rising and falling of the breath at the abdomen and what the secondary, does that sound familiar, the secondary object was doing. Okay, a few people, that, that I would say maybe less than 10%. And then they would sometimes ring the bell. That was a sign for you to go and the next person to come. Sometimes those kinds of practice meetings are are done kind of in multiples. It's your individual time, but other people are staged so close to what's going on. They hear your your report and what the teacher says to you and things. Hmm. That would certainly be an occasion for comparing mind to arise, would it not? So when I first started to teach, um, at a certain point I was invited to sit in on practice meetings. So I became the, the third person in the room. And I started to notice that there seemed to be a fair amount of confusion in the practice meetings about what was actually going on in there and what was the point of the practice meetings and you know what was the teacher really you know trying to figure out and so i thought it would be interesting to to uh, offer some 
perspective to allow you to get uh, the best support possible out of the 10 or 15 minutes that you'll wind up spending with each of your teachers every week. So there's a certain kind of way in which the practice meetings can initially bring about a certain amount of nervousness. It used to be that the practice meetings were called interviews. (laughs) And at a certain uh, point, it was thought, oh, perhaps we need to revisit the language that we use to... (laughs) describe these encounters because there's a certain way in which calling something an interview can bring up a whole set of assumptions or energies like interviewing for a job or um, right? going before uh, you know the judge and he's trying to decide whether he wants to hold you for something. So we thought, okay, interviews to get into into school or to get a fellowship or something like that. It kind of suggests uh, something where there could be a good or bad element overlaid onto the situation. And these meetings really aren't about getting a grade or um, getting the teacher's approval. It's not like that. So even though we've clarified the language and we're now calling them practice meetings instead of interviews, still things can come up for students. So there can be disappointment in not getting the teacher that you wanted. Not getting the teacher that you wanted. Oh, I was hoping I was going to get Joseph. It's usually Joseph. Oh, I was hoping I was going to get Joseph and I got... I, I had a, I had a, a student tell me once. This this was after six weeks of working with her. She said, "The first time I saw you sitting up there, I thought to myself, whoever I get, I don't want her." And you know, somehow I knew that at the first meeting. (laughs) But we worked it out. I guess I improved over time, but... So, but there, there can be stuff around that, right? Like, who did I get? Who did I get? And you know, there can be stuff around, oh, oh. Look at them, they're all like the same age, you know? They're all like these bourgeois, uh, you know? people, they've got their AARP card, and, (laughs) you know, they're mostly white, so they're all the same. You'd be surprised how um, unsimilar we actually are. (laughs) Makes for an interesting teaching group. But, you know, sometimes there can be... uh, also on the part of the student, a certain kind of nervousness or feeling of vulnerability, uh, you know, feeling sensitive, especially when you're just meeting a a teacher and you don't really have any kind of felt sense of connection with them yet. So this is normal. Um, Sometimes 
um, in the practice meetings when the mind gets really quiet and settled down, it can actually be kind of weird to talk. It can be kind of strange to actually find some words to bring forward, especially if English isn't your first language. You know, sometimes people worry about their English not being good enough or, uh, you know, the teacher won't understand what they're saying. There may also uh, sometimes be a fear of being judged or being found to not be good enough. You know, the comparing mind can really proliferate in these silent environments where you really don't have much idea at all about what other people are experiencing. And often the ideas that you do have are completely wrong, as you find out at the end of the retreat, but not during it. But there can be sense like, oh, everybody else is experiencing deep samadhi, and, you know, my mind is just thinking, 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 and I'm the worst one here, and I'm hopeless. You know, there can be the desire to feel like you're doing really well and that you're, you know, impressive or special. You know what that's like when that catches hold of the mind and you're like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show them. (laughs) I'm going to like, I'm going to, you know, (laughs) it's not pleasant, is it? It's like, oh, wow, stressful. You know, sometimes it, it can show up as like wanting to, please the teacher. I had a friend I talked to just last week who, who told me, uh, and this, this friend is a, t- is a teacher, uh, was a teacher for uh, many years, and she said when she um, went to retreat with Sayadaw Upandita, who was like this, this famously uh, demanding teacher, uh, an important teacher who recently passed away, she would find herself, he would ask certain questions. He, he would sometimes ask like tricky questions. He'd ask questions like, oh, well, when you, when you look around here, do you feel, feel uh, proud of yourself? And, and she would find herself going, what's the right answer here? Should I be like proud of myself? Or should I be like, oh no, I'm not proud of myself? Or why should I be? But like, you know, wanting to figure it out. Figure it out. But an interesting thing about, you know, uh, working with a teacher is there really isn't a right answer. They're not lo- looking for you to tell them a, a, a certain uh, answer, like in a crossword puzzle or something. They're looking for you to tell what you know about what you've experienced. That's a whole different thing. It's a less demanding task in some ways. In some ways it's harder. Because to tell what you know about what you have experienced, you have to have been present for the experience when it was happening. Which of course is, that's the hard part. So another thing that can come up for people is feeling embarrassed um, or kind of vulnerable about what you actually are experiencing and not wanting to disclose too much. You know, like if you're having a big rip of, you know, rage, sometimes it can be a little vulnerable to go in and tell that to a teacher, right? Oh, here we are on retreat. 
cultivating loving kindness and all this, uh, these beautiful energies of heart and mind and all these peaceful people around me and oh, the teachers are also elevated and here I am feeling rage and it's so horrible to feel rage. Eh, it's just, just another state. Just another state. But sometimes it can be a little hard to get it out. Believe me, the teachers have experienced <laughs> rage. Um, or maybe don't feel too clear about what's actually uh, going on in the meeting. Like, where should I start? What part should I talk about? So that's something that whoever you're working with can actually help you with by asking you some questions and getting you started in making a description of your experience. So <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> the point of the practice meetings. Well, one point is, so <laughs> you know, you're not just like out there <laughs> completely on your own. Uh, obviously, that's an important function, right? Because this process of internal learning through your own direct observation is really greatly aided and supported by stating your experience to another person and getting uh, feedback and dialogue from them about what's happening for you. So the teacher can offer you human contact on your silent journey. A few times a week you'll have a talkie with another person and that person will listen very carefully to what you say. So this to me is actually one of the great gifts of being on retreat because it's really an unusual thing to be in an environment where somebody is really listening to what you're saying and taking you in as fully as they they can. We don't get listened to in that way very often. So just being listened to in that kind of fashion can be reassuring and supportive. You know, there are different forms of Buddhism and the teacher has various roles in those different forms, but in the tradition uh, in which we're rooted, the role of the teacher is what's called Kalyanamita, meaning spiritual friend. So we're a, a companion to you on your journey. And part of our role, as I see it at least, is to help put you at ease so that you can feel comfortable being honest. So you practice wise speech by being uh, truthful and forthright, and we practice wise uh, listening and try to... Um, let you feel the the goodwill that we have for you so that it feels safe for you to do so. So another thing that <clears throat> we do as part of the big picture is to remind you of what you're doing and why you're here. <laughs> this may 
uh, feel kind of obvious, but I don't know. I'm guessing that some of you have been asking yourself that very question in the last 48 hours. What am I doing and why am I here? So sometimes things can get confused and confusing and um, unduly complicated. There's a certain way in which our our minds are complexification machines. We manage to turn very simple uh, instructions and tasks into something that um, results in a lot of undue stress and fruitless energetic activity. <laughs> and sometimes like, just hearing how you're practicing, what the style of practice how you're going about it. A teacher can sometimes say to you, you know, you're, you're doing, trying to do way too much. <clears throat> you're making it really hard. It's really much easier than that. Much simpler than that, anyway. I had a, f- a friend who told me once that, you know, he went on retreat and he, he knew some dharma and he knew what the seven factors of awakening were. So he knew what the seven factors of awakening were. These particular qualities of mind that tend to open in sequence and practice when someone is moving towards awakening. And he said because he knew what the seven factors of awakening were, what he would do when he went on practice is he would start with the first one, which was mindfulness, and then he would make that happen. This is the language that he used. He would try to make that happen. He would make that happen. And then he would like try to make the second one happen. You know, investigation. And then he would try to make the third one happen. You know, so there's like the, all this trying to make these things happen, make them open in sequence, and you know, like summon this and summon that, and you know, like he was working with a chemistry set or something like that, or a recipe and you know dumping all this stuff in the bowl in the right right amounts. And he said he used to get like so, so tired that, you know, by the time he got to the the point where you were supposed to have, you know, some concentration, he was like completely burned out on the whole enterprise. So he said it took him uh, quite a while to figure out that uh, the seven factors uh, open, present themselves and develop not because you're trying to make them develop, but by you, by uh, learning skill in what proper attention is to immediate experience. Guess what? They do it on their own. They're kind of a, a byproduct of continuous, close, mindful attention to immediate experience. They happen on their own. There is no separate need to try to jury rig. Uh, you know, I had this image as he was talking about this, you know, like somebody that that had erected a crane and now he was trying to find the I-beam to swing into place so he could, you know, build this next level. And I was like, oh my God, so tiring. Uh, just feel the breath. <laughs> just feel the breath. Sit there, know you're sitting sensations in the body, hearing, hearing. That's a lot less less work. 
the hard part's remembering. That's the hard part. So this redirection of your energy and your effort to a productive line is what we're trying to do. And then there's the piece about listening closely to your meditation experience and helping you clarify what you're actually observing and how to relate to it skillfully. So this has to do with helping you frame what's happening within a dharmic, within a meditation practice perspective. So if somebody comes in and says, I'm really upset, you know, by the time I got to the end of the the serving table, all the olives were gone and they just don't seem to care about whether there are olives for people who are at the end of the line and, you know, the people at the front have to be pigs or maybe the kitchen doesn't care about us or they would, somebody would notice that there aren't any olives and, uh, right? Well, you know, you'll see. <laughs> Minds can do strange things. <laughs> you know, the teacher would be more inclined to say, oh, so there was a desire for olives. <laughs> and then there was unpleasantness and anger that arose when you noticed that they weren't there. Yeah. So, you know, that translation part is very useful to you. So, and this can involve asking you questions about what you report and pointing out certain things to you, as I just showed in that example. Oh, maybe you're experiencing the hindrance of aversion. Do you think that might be aversion? Do you think that might be craving? What do you, what do you think that state is? Or when you saw your mind grasp that particular painful thought, what arose for you next? Once you had that thought of, I'm the worst yogi here, I can't do this. Then what happened? When that pleasant experience happened and you really enjoyed it, what did the mind do when that went away? So you can see these are all all pointings to certain key perspectives of Buddha Dharma having to do with identification with experience with suffering that arises from from clinging. So the teachers can also help to keep you and your practice in balance. So there's a teaching called uh, the five spiritual faculties. And often this is a template um, that can be used to kind of look at what's going on within practice and to see what's going on, which particular, in this case, wholesome factors of mind are present and whether they're balanced with each other. So there's faith and then uh, effort energy. Then there's mindfulness in the middle of which you can't have too much. Mindfulness doesn't need to be balanced. And then 
there's concentration and wisdom. So, you know, for instance, you could be sitting on your cushion having a lot of dharmic uh, reflections uh, about how wonderful the dharma is and how exciting the dharma is and how much you enjoy the dharma and how fantastic it is um, and yet not be balanced in practice, not be balanced with wisdom because you're so busy enjoying the thought of the beauty of the dharma that the mind is not actually observing with wisdom its immediate experience. So the the teachers can help spot those kinds of things and kind of tap you back into a more skillful uh, uh, perspective in relationship to what's going on. Yes, that's true, the Dharma is wonderful, the Dharma is, is beautiful, faith is wonderful, faith is, is beautiful. And when you're doing walking meditation, tell me about what you notice about your feet. <laughs> Can you feel your feet <laughs> when you're doing walking practice? Or are you completely caught up in your head and what might even be in some ways a wholesome state. So another way that the teachers can support is by helping you normalize your experience and come up with trust in yourself to work with what's coming up. So in the course of doing long practice, you can have a very wide range of physical, mental, emotional experiences. You can get the the whole range, all the way from things that are very pleasant to very unpleasant. And when the mind gets a little quieter and a little more concentration opens, sometimes those states can be pretty strong. Pretty strong states can come up in meditation practice. And this is normal. This is a normal thing to happen. But if you haven't been on long retreat before and you haven't had the experience, say, of having strong emotional or physical states come up, the first few times it it happens, it can be like, oh, what's going on here? Am I losing it? It's like, oh my God, I thought I was supposed to be getting peaceful and tranquil. Isn't that what's... Where's all the meta? It's like, oh, now I'm like feeling a lot of anxiety or I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. Yeah, but because we ourselves in our own practice have had these kinds of experiences many, many times, we're not really bothered by them because we just see them as uh, normal happenings on retreat. And we can help convey that to you too. Oh, this is just the kind of stuff that happens on retreat. This is how you could work with this particular thing that's happening. Or maybe if it's starting to feel a little bit over top, okay, this is how you would want to redirect and do something something different now. But in a certain kind of way, you know, we don't really buy into, we don't buy into the... Um, unease, or the fear when different things, unfamiliar things, may open for you. Because we've been through this territory ourselves many, many times, and have seen many, many people go through it.
So one thing to know about this process too is that that this is really a two-participant thing. It's a real dyad. This teacher-yogi interaction. So in order for it to really work well, you have to be a full participant in it. So if you really think about what's going on in the practice meetings, you're the one that provides the information necessary for us to be able to make suggestions to you and to understand what's happening in your practice. Right? That, that baseline of information comes from you. And then we can help you get started with that, right? If you're having a hard time getting started, we can ask you questions, ask you about particular things, and just just see what you've noticed about it. But you basically tell us, and then we respond, and then it becomes a dialogue. So you have to have uh, at least some provisional trust in the teachers that you're working with in order to be able to be open in that kind of way. So I say provisional trust because, you know, there's never any any reason to be completely unconditionally trusting in anybody unless you know them pretty well, right? You don't know. I mean, that wo- that woman who didn't like my looks from day one, she <laughs> she wasn't too delighted. But, you know, it was clear by the end that it was a projection and she owned it. But, so maybe we should say something about motivation. So I'm using the, the what we call the royal we here, as if, you know, I was Queen Elizabeth. You know, she speaks for the nation. She always says we instead of I or me, but I'll use the royal we anyway. So you would need to look to the point of motivation for people who um, are teaching. So I think you should probably uh, take as a starting assumption that the mot- our motivation is powered by our direct experience in the transformative um, effect of the Dharma and deep Dharma practice and by the desire to share it with others so that they can benefit too. So that's why I do this, because I know that it works. I've seen the transformation in my own heart and mind, and I think it's the most fantastic thing to be able to support others in making that same kind of discovery for themselves. So what could be more amazing? So when we go into these practice meetings where you're talking about your breath or your hindrance or your sensory experience, I'm actually listening very, very carefully to you because I find it completely fascinating. And one of the things that I find completely fascinating about it, and I talked about this in one of the small groups today, is how completely different each one of you is. Completely different. Completely different energetic field, 
for every person who comes in and sits down. It's like, wow, the human variety is fantastic. Everybody is, has, you know, the basic, same basic setup, the same range of states of body and mind, but the mandala, the individual mandalas, are so unique, so of themselves. So every encounter is different for me. And, you know, just in the same way that everybody on retreat is unique, that's true of the teachers too. You know, you'll have a different experience with your two teachers. Like the vibe will be different. Which is a really good thing, right? You have two sets of eyes, two sets of experience present and working to support what you're trying to do. So another thing that you should know about the people who are teaching is that we've all traveled the same terrain that you have and you will. So we've had the same kind of practice difficulties that you've had, all of them, all of the hindrances, and all of the hindrances all at once, in various flavors and various versions, and guess what? We still get them. (laughs) So we haven't forgotten. (laughs) It's not like they're in the ancient distant past. So we know. You know, there's uh, something that can happen, especially on long retreat, that's referred to as yogi mind, where people's minds get quiet and they get kind of sensitized and um, can become... um, uh, what, 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 what's a skillful way to put this? Well, if you've had it, you know you've had it. But, oh, you know, the characteristic of yogi mind uh, would be represented in uh, the story I told about the disappointment in olives and what it, and not having olives and what that's the set of associative states of distress that set off. Well, you know, we've all <laughs> had plenty of yogi mind. If we actually wanted to have an amusing evening sometime, we could all sit around and tell our yogi mind stories. But but the main point of it is, because of all all this above, we don't have delicate sensitivities. So really, anything that you tell us is not going to be shocking. Because we've seen it all in our own minds. Right? All of it. And because we've done practice ourselves and continue to practice, we know how much courage and commitment it takes to, to do this kind of intensive retreat. So there's a kind of sympathy with your difficulties and happiness at your successes. And maybe just a a, a piece um, to close on why you might actually need a teacher. You know, there's so much Dharma out there in books and Dharma talks and videos. And recently the New York Times had this thing on the front page about mindfulness and 
you know, these guided meditations that, you know, you could download and just click. And there's tons of stuff out there, tons of it. And yet, can you do it all from the seat that you currently occupy with just some external resources of a non-human variety? It's tough. It would be tough. And the reason I say that is, if you consider what the Buddha says about suffering, he says, the primary source of suffering is delusion born from craving. He says that's what holds the whole, whole that's the linchpin that an identity, an identity view holds together our um, discretionary human suffering. But the thing about delusion is that trying to see your own delusion is a little bit like trying to see the back of your head. Right? I mean, the thing about delusion is that if you knew you were deluded or in what ways you were deluded, you wouldn't be deluded. But the point is, you don't see it. So it, trying to guide yourself just from a book or a Dharma talk or other resources that describe how meditation should happen doesn't work very well on retreat. And I'm specifically mentioning this because, you know, sometimes yogis have done study or reading or, uh, and from this they have gained some familiarity with the meditative path. So you may be f- uh, familiar, for instance, with teachings uh, from the Vasudhi Magga, um, uh, teachings like the path of purification. Um. So this is information is interesting and sometimes helpful, sometimes. But when you're on retreat and you're actually working with a a live teacher, trying to simultaneously guide your own practice from a map isn't really a very good idea. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is just the complexification that I described in my friend's practice when I told you how he knew what the seven factors of awakening were, and he would try to manufacture each one of those to, you know, make it happen. But another reason is that the maps are one description of how the mind can open and come to understanding, but they're not necessarily accurate in all detail, and they're not necessarily complete. And they don't actually describe the path for everyone. Additionally, a yogi's own sense of where they are on the path is very often inaccurate. So you could be the best person, obviously, to describe your direct experience, but you're not necessarily the best person to interpret it when you're on intensive retreat. It's a little bit like trying to be your own spotter in gymnastics or something, right? You need somebody kind of outside the process to help with that. And I mention that this because retreat practice has a lot of cycles in it. 
you know, you can go through runs of practice where it can feel easeful and pleasant and like a, you know, feel like you're really getting a grip on it. And then you go through cycles where that particular way of knowing, um, knowing things, those particular, that particular run of experiences change, fall apart. The things that you, you were able to do with ease, like in terms of pulling uh, your concentration together or staying with an object easily, can suddenly not be available to you. Now, if you were just going on the basis of, oh, God, I could do it this morning and now I can't do it. What am I doing wrong? Let me try to get it back. You know, try to like reverse engineer what you were doing. You probably wouldn't necessarily have a lot of success because the causes and conditions perhaps have just changed. So now the new task is instead of trying to recreate something or cling to something which has gone before, now the task is, what is happening now? Now what is happening? Relating to what's actually happening now. So, these ideas that we have about practice and what's good practice and what's not good practice are often quite inaccurate. Very often we have this idea that good practice means pleasant practice and easy practice. And that's not actually the case. That's not the measurement. This is our human tendency to think ease and pleasantness is a sign that that it's going right. But if you, you think about what's actually going on in the practice of insight meditation, I just said a little bit earlier that one of the classic ways of describing what goes on in insight meditation practice is the path of purification. So if you think about that, that suggests that perhaps... <laughs> Perhaps there may be some uh, places where it's not pleasant and it's not easeful. But it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It's just that you're traveling through that territory. So in your relationship with the teacher, the the teacher is familiar with practice cycles and can help you not get too spun out or hung up when you hit these zones where things are challenging. They can offer that real-time, real human support. So if you want to know the formula for what, what advice we give to you, I will tell it to you now. Are you ready to know? What instruction you may receive or suggestions you may uh, get from us? So what you tell us, verbally and non-verbally, plus the teacher's dharma knowledge and meditation experience, mixed with intuition and what arises in the present moment equals the advice and guidance that's offered. So it's alive. 
These practice meetings are alive. So this joint arising from the presence of the teacher and the and the present presence of the yogi. So I'll just close by saying, may you participate fully in opening your own path to awakening in this silent world that you now inhabit. May our practice be for our own benefit and for that of all beings, without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.